Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast featuring lead pastor Doug Sherman. For more information about Grace Harvest Church, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you as Pastor Doug shares this week's message. We've been going through a series in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Philippians was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in a city called Philippi, and it was written from prison. So he was imprisoned, and he wrote a letter to the Christians that were in the city of Philippi and this church that was gathering. They weren't meeting in a building. They were meeting in different homes and different places throughout the city, and he wrote them this letter to circulate, and he's telling them in the letter how to live. Because false teachers had begun to come in and try to distort the good news about Jesus. And he wanted to set them straight, but also encourage the church. The church was suffering. It was going through a hard season. Uh, Some of them were experiencing persecution for their faith. And so Paul's writing them to encourage them and lift them up. And today's section that I want to talk to you about, the, the bottom line to it is that Jesus alone is your salvation and prize. Paul writes them, and he says, Jesus alone is your salvation and your prize. He's everything you're looking for. He's the focal point of your faith. And so I'm going to continue on where I started last week. Um, I want to look at Jesus today. You know, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity and you want to know what it's really all about, you need look no further than Jesus of Nazareth. He is Christianity. He is Not all the systems, not the buildings, not the programs, not the stuff we're doing out at Endeavor. If you're looking for an explanation of what Christianity is, Christianity is Jesus. He's the centerpiece. He's the point. He's the main focus. He is the good news. He is true theology and doctrine. He is true religion. He's the reason we gather and sing songs. He's the reason we're here right now, Jesus Christ. He's our purpose and our prize for living. He's more than an example to follow, though He is that. He is our example, but He's more than that. He's more than a great teacher, though He is the greatest teacher that's ever lived. He's the Savior of all humankind and of all creation. He's the one that will make all of creation right again, and He is currently making you and I right again. Amen. He is the one I'm going to speak of today. And what I want to share with you is that only faith in Him can bring a person to heaven when they die and bring heaven into a person when they put their faith in Him. He's the purpose and the focal point of everything we desire. D.M. Stearns, a pastor and well-known preacher in the late 1800s and early 1900s, was preaching one time in Philadelphia. At the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, I don't like the way you spoke about Jesus and the cross today. I think that instead of emphasizing the death of Jesus, it would be far better to preach Jesus the teacher and example. Stearns replied to him, if I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said the preacher, let's take the first step. He did, Jesus did, no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? The man looked confused and somewhat surprised. Why no, he said. I acknowledge that I do sin. Stearns replied, 
then your greatest need right now is to have a Savior, not an example. And what I want to show you today is that our greatest need, not just when we first come to faith in Jesus, but our greatest need throughout our walk with Jesus Christ is that He be our Savior. And He regularly rescue us from the stuff that torpedoes us from within. The stuff that tries to take us down again and again. That thing we call sin. That we would recognize that He is not just our Savior one time when we said, Jesus, come into my life, but He's our ongoing Savior. But He's more than that. He is also our prize, our goal. He's the treasure that we're seeking. He's the one that we got into this thing for. Right? We began to follow him because he captivated us and wrecked us and made himself real to us. And what I'm going to share with you today is that so many of us get distracted and our focus gets off of Jesus Christ onto other things, including ourselves and our own ability to try to keep the rules and be good, be a good little Christian. And what I hope to do today is kind of slap you across the face in a good way, wake you up, shake you up, and cause you to look at Jesus Christ in a new way and a fresh way and recognize how wonderful, lovely, amazing, beautiful, astounding, and powerful He is. We're going to look at Jesus today. I love to preach about Jesus. He's the best, right? So last week, we went through verses 1 through 6 and covered a couple of things. The first point was, no matter what happens, rejoice in the Lord. And remember, I shared with you that to rejoice is a choice. Right? God has given us the, the ability, even in our suffering and our difficulty, to rejoice, to be happy, to celebrate Him. Secondly, that our human efforts will never make us right with God. And I'm going to talk about that in depth today. But our human efforts cannot make us right with God. And I warned us last week to watch out for people who try to add to what Jesus has done for you. Subtle messages that come into the Christian life and say, yeah, you know, I, I, I know Jesus died on the cross and that was enough, but you know, if you really want to be in the inner circle of what the Holy Spirit's doing and what God's doing, you need to look at this view or you need to be a part of this group. You know, whenever I, I meet somebody and they tell me that they're part of this particular church or this particular group and they've really tapped into the truth and they've really got, you know, they got into the real thing and, and this is a special group and there's no other church, there's no other group like it and they're kind of exclusive and if you really want to be a part of the in thing that God's doing, whenever I hear people say stuff like that, immediately my alarms go up and I'm like, uh-oh, that's cultish, that's wrong. And I want you to know, we don't have a corner on the truth, and we don't have it all figured out here, and we're just one church of many in this community, and they're all, the ones that are following Jesus are doing an amazing work. They have great leaders, great pastors, and they're great churches, and they're healthy churches, and praise God for the church in Moses Lake, amen? But if you ever start to hear somebody say, well, this is the real group here, this is the cool group, let me just tell you right there, be careful, be careful, Amen? And then I share with you that our religious heritage or our good works ultimately count for nothing if we're counting on them. And we're going to look more at that. So this week, here's my first point today. If you're taking notes and you want to write them down on that little sheet of paper in the back of your bulletin, this is the first point. Everything is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Everything is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, not 6 through 11. Look at this with me if you would. I'm going to put it up on the screen, or they're going to put it up on the screen. Let's look at it. Verse 1, excuse me, verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable. What things are Paul talking about? He's talking about the stuff I just covered. 
his own background, his own religious heritage. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Now, as we started last week, Paul's, you know, he's saying, listen, my religious heritage is worthless. My background is worthless. All of the degrees in his time, they would have been equivalent to degrees. The degrees that I have, the ethnic background that I have, all of it is worthless compared to knowing Jesus. And I shared with you last week, and I want to share it again. Maybe you're here, and you have a Christian background. You grew up in a Christian home. You went to a Christian school. Maybe you were homeschooled. Your mom and dad had devotions with you at home. All of that is great as long as it points us to a knowing of Jesus Christ and an encounter with Him. But here's what I find. I find it among many Christians in the church. People kind of come up in the church and they think, oh, because I came up in the church, I'm good. I'm good. I learned about Jesus the whole time I was growing up. I know the Bible. I go to church. I pay my tithe. I read, you know, I, I have family devotions, and they think that because of that, they actually are good. And they don't recognize that if you're counting on that, if you're counting on your heritage, your background, your upbringing, if you're counting on the fact that you were raised in a Christian home, but you're not counting on Jesus Christ alone, be very careful. You may not even really know him. And that's the sad thing. Even in the time of Jesus, you had all these people who came up in Judaism, all these people who studied the Bible. You had boys who by the age of 13 could quote all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They knew the scripture. They knew the history. They knew the stories of the coming of Messiah. And yet when Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, the very people who were waiting for him, yearning for him, looking for him, couldn't even recognize him, and they missed him as he passed right in front of him. Not only did they miss him, they crucified him. Now think about that. Think about how easy it is for religious people, people that grow up in the church, people that grow up with right belief to think, I'm good, I got it figured out. But the reality is, unless we recognize our total brokenness and our need, unless we recognize that self-righteousness is like filthy rags and God hates it, unless we're willing to cast aside any claim that we have of our own goodness, we're in trouble. We have to recognize that He alone is pure and good and lovely. Paul said, I consider all of this to be garbage. I shared with you last, last week that the Greek word there means poop, rotting garbage. That's what it means. He's saying, that's what all my background is compared to the reality of knowing Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
our own righteousness must be seen, and it goes right along with this, as nothing compared to faith in Jesus. It's difficult to let our own righteousness go. And I don't just find this with religious people. I mean all of us. We love to speak about and show our own righteousness to the world all around us. Just, just listen to us as we speak in comparative language. Listen to how we have a tendency to explain ourselves and compare ourselves to others by saying phrases like, I would never do that. Or, we would do this or that and they won't do this. Think about even in your marriage. Have you ever recognized in your marriage relationship when you have conflict, when you have tension, words are thrown out, phrases are thrown out like, I can't believe you would do that. I would never do that. Why do you think that way? I would never think that way. Our tendency as human beings is always to come up with our own standards for righteousness and lift them above another. Our, our tendencies are always to compare ourselves to another. And that's how we justify ourselves before people and before God. We stand on the outside and we think we're superior and our language betrays us. And instead of trusting Christ and Christ alone, we trust us and us alone. See, we, I've shared this with you before, but we have a tendency to think that as long as the balances are tipping toward our goodness, we're going to be okay with God, Right? We have this balance in our mind. Uh, we, we do it subconsciously. We don't even realize it. But, you know, over here we've got Mother Teresa and Jesus. And over here we've got Charles Manson and Adolf Hitler. Right? And we think that as long as we're tilting toward the Jesus, Mother Teresa side, we're good. Right? And in our, then we assess ourselves. We say, well, I'm better than so-and-so, and I'm good in this way, and that person over there, they went and did this in their family. They went and did that in their marriage, and they got this problem with that substance or, or that kind of situation. But me, I'm better than that. And so in our minds, we think, you know, God's going to look at my life, and he's going to say, mm, you know, you're pretty good. Come on in. And that's not how it works at all. That's self-righteousness. That's comparative living. And we forget that God has a standard that is wholly different. His standard is a standard of perfection, absolute purity, complete holiness. The only way you and I could ever be right with God is if somebody lived for us in our place. Not only took our punishment, but gave us His rightness and goodness. That's the only way we could come before God. And one of the reasons I hit strongly on this is because even in the church, many Christians have funny beliefs about how they're made right with God. And we don't even realize we're doing it. Study after study has been done. I was just reading recently the Pew, excuse me, didn't even say Pew Research Organization did a national study on Americans and their beliefs, and in particular looked at Christians' beliefs. And one of the things that they found about Christians in churches is that most Christians don't even believe Christian doctrine. Most of the people who claim to be Christian in America don't even truly believe what the Bible says about God, about Jesus, about their need for a Savior. In fact, one of the things that struck me as profound is when Christians were asked, how does a person be made right with God and enter into heaven upon death? A majority of people who say they believe in Jesus Christ said I'm going to get there because I'm a good person. 
And maybe you've said it. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, yeah, that's what I would say. I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes. I haven't killed anybody. I'm staying clean. I'm working on my marriage. And you, you'll, you'll present yourself before God and others as, I'm a pretty good person. Aren't I going to get in because of that? But what the gospel teaches is unless you're perfect, unless you've kept all the commands, unless you've not only kept them in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law, unless you've been completely perfect, you're damned. And now people are like, whoa, I'm damned. <laughs> yes, you are. I mean, think about it. Can you say, I've never lied? No, the way most of us handle it is a well, I know I've lied, but God, you know, God can handle a little lie. No. Oh, well, you might say, well, I've never committed adultery, but have you looked upon a person of the opposite sex or same sex and had attractions that you know were unholy and unhealthy and you know you shouldn't be going there? And you've thought them in your heart and had them in your heart? The Scripture teaches you've already committed adultery. You've already committed a sexual act. In your heart and mind, you've gone there. Whoa. Well, I've never, well, I guess I have, right? You start, to, you start to go through all the commandments, you know? We haven't lived holy. We haven't lived right. So what did God do? God sent His Son. He sent His Son to take the fall. He sent His Son to keep the law. Jesus kept every commandment perfectly, not just the letter of it, but the spirit of it. Jesus walked completely holy and pure, and God put you on him or in him when he was crucified. So when Jesus was being crucified, you and I were being hung in him, and all of the charges against us, every time we had violated the law, every time we had broken a commandment, every time we had even done it in our hearts, every time we'd hated someone, and Jesus said, that's murder, every time we'd hated someone in our heart, despised another, thought of another contemptuously, put him down, thought of ourselves as superior and better than all of that was put on him on the cross and he took it all he absorbed it into himself and he took your sin away from you and then you know what he did he gave you his righteousness he imputed to you what you didn't deserve so that when God the Father looks at you, He looks at you through His Son and He sees one that stands holy and righteous before Him, one who is sinless and pure, one who is perfectly obedient to every single one of the commandments. That's how He looks at you. That's how He treats you. That's how He approaches you. But I'm telling you, if you start trusting in your own righteousness, if you start building your own list, and that's what we do, we build our own lists. We come up with our own lists, right? We don't realize how much we're living according to performance. We don't recognize many times in our life that we started trusting ourselves and quit trusting Jesus. I challenged the first service, you know, some of you, when you first came to Jesus, He captivated you. 
You saw the cross for what it was, and you were amazed at his love for you. You were amazed at what he did for you, and everything else faded into the background, and you saw Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, and you embraced him, and you loved him, and you followed him, but then stuff started happening. Disappointment came, and and people let you down, and pastors let you down, and people in the church failed you, and after a while, Jesus started to get kind of foggy, and you couldn't see him very well anymore, but you saw people real clearly, and you found yourself disappointed and disillusioned, and then without even realizing you were doing it, you began to build your own standards. Rather than looking at Jesus, you began to think in the back of your mind, it's up to me. And you didn't realize you started counting on yourself and your own goodness. And even in your prayer life and in your your mind and your thoughts, you would think like this, oh God, I'm trying my best. I'm I'm being good, Lord. Lord, I'm going to church. I'm paying my tithe. I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. Why aren't you doing more in my life? Why aren't you doing more? because in the back of your mind you subtly trusted in yourself you believed that if you did everything right and you were a good person and a good Christian your life would be blessed but then you started going through hell and you started going through difficulty and you had an entitlement mentality come upon you and you began to think God owes me this because I've been good and at that moment you were saying to God I trust me, I trust my rightness I don't trust what Jesus did on the cross I'm not counting on Christ I'm counting on me That's what we do. That's what we do. We count on ourselves. We build our lists before God. We let him know, we got it, Lord. We got it. What I'm hoping you'll see today is you'll take your eyes off of that. You'll quit all that performance. You'll quit all that trying in your own strength to prove your goodness to God. And you'll start trusting alone in what Jesus Christ did for you. See, when I was being raised, I... I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My dad was a drug addict and a convict, and he, he rejected me at five, and my family at five when I was five years old. And a stepfather came into my life, and he did the best he knew how to do. He was from a bro- bro- really broken background as well, so I can't fault him, but I have to tell you, I was raised where he was very demanding. I was the oldest, and he expected much of me. He expected much in school. And he never said, I love you. And he expected, you know, all, all my chores, everything. He was one of those people who was never happy, never satisfied. I was never doing enough. And he never said, I love you. And I remember I would go to bed at night and he would shake my hand. That's how he would tell me goodnight. Shake my hand. And if I got any C's, I would get grounded. He wanted A's and B's. And so I'm growing up like that under him, and then I start to get into trouble as a teenager. I start to get into sex, drugs, and rock and roll and everything else. Our family's coming apart. I'm going the wrong direction, and him and I are fighting, and it turns into violent fights, and he's hitting me and abusing me, and finally I leave home. I run away from home at 17, and I'm out on my own, and I'm drugging it, and I'm doing some bad stuff, almost died, and and during this period of time... God began to work on my life, and I came into a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I was born again. I was saved, and, and, and the thing that struck me, the thing that amazed me was he loved me, and he knew me. He knew what a mess I was. He knew the things I had done. He knew the bloodshed on my hand. He knew who I was and what I'd done, and yet he loved me, and he forgave me. And I saw clearly, this isn't about me. It's about him. He did it. He's not counting on my goodness. I'm counting on his. But you know what happened? After a short period of time, without realizing what I was doing, I began to trust in my own righteousness again. 
I started in the back of my mind, you know, trying to perform. Why? Because I grew up in a home where my performance equaled some kind of love. I didn't get much, but as long as I did it all right, as long as I was good, as long as I kept the rules, as long as I did my chores and I got good grades, I would get every once in a while maybe a gift at Christmas that would, that was his way of saying, okay, yeah, you got more gifts this year than normal because you were a good kid, right? So what happens is without realizing it, you carry that stuff into your relationship with God and you start thinking that your relationship with God is all about your performance, And that you need to work real hard and perform real good. As long as you're a good person and you keep all the rules, right? You go jump all the hurdles and you do everything just right. God will love you and you'll be good with God. And so very subtly you slip into this performance orientation, this law keeping. You slip into this this self-ability, self-righteousness. I'm going to be good. And without even realizing it, you're saying, I trust me, not you. And we have to be liberated from that over and over again. We have to be liberated from trusting in our own goodness. Now, some of you are saying, sounds to me like you're saying we can do anything and God's okay with it. No, I'm not saying that. But I will tell you this. You can never out the grace and the love of God. Right? You can never out the grace and the love of God. And not only that, but when God changes your heart, you're not going to want to sin. Over time, I mean, I'm not saying you're not going to be tempted and you're not going to struggle, but you're going to find less and less of an appeal, more and more of an abhorrence, and more and more of an appeal in the face of Jesus, right? Am I talking to anybody? Which takes me to the part of this message and my time, and I did this in the first service too, which takes me to the part of the message that I really wanted to focus on, and that is that knowing Jesus... And sharing with him and his experience is the highest goal and prize of life. Knowing him. This is going to seem, I don't even know if I can express it. Do you want to know what this life is about? If you're new in the faith or you're on your journey, you want to know what it's about? It's really simple, actually. I'm not saying it isn't hard. But it's very simple. The goal of the Christian life is to know Him. And as you get to know Him, you'll become like Him. And then you make Him known. Right? It's to know Him, become like Him, and to make Him known. And that's all a work of the Holy Spirit within us. But what happens is we get sidetracked. We start thinking the Christian life is about other things, our lists. Right? Or just being good. Or we we think that being a Christian is... You know, I'm going to go to church and do the Christian thing so that I can have a good life. And I'm not saying you're not going to have a good life, but let me just tell you, the goal isn't your good life. The goal isn't even your happiness, so you're going to be very happy and you're going to have a lot of pleasure. The goal is knowing Him. You're going to know Him. And knowing Him is the most wonderful thing that could ever happen to you. To know Him is to know Him experientially. Look, God didn't bring you to Grace Harvest Church to get religion. In particular, man-made religion. He didn't bring you here for that. I hope that doesn't happen to you. I hope you don't come here and get religionized. I hope you don't come here and get Christianized. I hope you come here and get Jesusized. He brought you here to know Him intimately and personally. To be saved is to trust in Him alone for your right standing with God. To live as a saved person is to get 
to progressively know Him more and more through His Word, your church family, creation, and that daily walk with Him. The more you get to know Him, the more you want to become like Him. The more you become like Him, the more you want to tell other people about Him. The more you get to know Him, the more you want others to know about Him because He's that captivating. You begin to realize that becoming like Him could include suffering like Paul did, and you embrace that. It's not that you ask for suffering or look for it or that you're some kind of masochist and you like suffering. It's that you realize that if I'm going to follow Him because He suffered, I'm going to suffer. But you also know after He suffered, He rose from the dead and He lived in resurrection life, and I can live in resurrection life too, so that if I do suffer, it's always going to be followed by new kinds of life. You recognize that getting to know Him means to become like Him. But knowing Him is everything. I've shared this before, but there's just something about Jesus. John Jeremiah Sullivan was an award-winning writer who's been compared to the famous contemporary writers Tom Wolfe and David Foster Wallace. Um, He said of himself, listen to this, he said of himself that as an adolescent, he had a bout with evangelicalism. What's that mean? He had a bout with churches kind of like ours in America. And he's walked away from the church completely. He's walked away from a biblical faith. But he can't fully reject the person of Jesus. He writes, at least once a year since college, I'll be getting to know someone. And it comes out that we have in common a high school Jesus phase that always gives us an excellent laugh. Except a phase is supposed to end or at least give way to other phases, not simply expand into a long preoccupation. My problem isn't that I dream I'm in hell. It isn't that I feel psychologically harmed. It isn't that I feel a sucker for having bought it all. It's that I love Jesus Christ. Why should He vex me? Why is His ghost not friendlier? Why can't I just be a good enlightenment child and see in His life a sustaining example of what can be as a species? Sullivan claims that once you've known Jesus as God, it's hard to find comfort in Jesus as just another man. And even after years of unbelief, he admits, one has doubts about one's doubts. Why is it that this Jesus has captivated every generation for 20 centuries all over this globe? Why is it that people are willing to die for their faith. Why is it that right now on this globe, people are suffering the loss of jobs, homes, families are being imprisoned and being tortured and going all the way to the point of death without denying Jesus because in Jesus they've found someone who's completely captivated their attention, their affections, their imaginations, their dreams, and their hopes. Why is that? What is so compelling about this Jesus? He's beautiful. He's amazing. He's astounding. He's the Savior of the world. He's the one born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified in your place. He suffered unrighteously. He suffered injustice. He suffered rejection. He was pursued from the time he was a baby to be killed by others. And yet this one came on the scene and spoke in the most profound words in human history. He held audiences spellbound with the power of his words. And then he healed 
healed their sick. He raised their dead. He walked on water. He multiplied loaves and fish, and he, and he fed thousands. He did miracles, and he captivated men who later themselves would go and die as martyrs because they fell in love with him. He was crucified for their sins, and he rose from the dead. He beat hell. He beat death. He beat the, beat the big one, death. He did all of that, and he continues to captivate. And in my own life, I can't get away from Jesus. I can't quit looking at him. I can't quit being astounded by him. And I want to challenge you, because many of you in this room, there was a time you were, but you let something happen. Life has beat you up. It's knocked you around. It's disappointed you. It's disillusioned you. Church has disillusioned you. People have disillusioned you. Can I tell you, get your eyes off of them. Get your eyes off of your past. Forgetting, oh, we'll get into that next week. Forgetting those things which lie behind. Press on to that which is ahead. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you what, today he can shift you. Today he can turn you. Today he can get your priorities sifted out again. Today he can begin to get your life set up in such a way as you start to leave aside some of the things that have distracted your attention and you start to see him again in a fresh way. Am I talking to anybody? Which takes me to my last point. The way that you're made right with him, with God, the way that you come to know him personally is simple. Faith in Jesus. Faith in him. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3.9. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. That's the way it's too simple. No, it's not. Well, yes, it is. See, faith alone in Jesus can make you right with God. And again, I don't just mean right with God when you're first coming to him. I mean throughout the Christian experience. This is what I find over and over again. I slip back into the performance thing over and over. I start to count on myself over and over. I revert, revert. I revert back to old ways of thinking very simply, easily. Happens like I get subtly trapped and drawn in and I start counting on me. And I turn and I look at him again. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Lord. I was counting on me, but you're enough. Amen? Many of us in this room are consistently trying to make up for our sins or our bad behavior by doing things to make God happy. Maybe if I'm just better this week. Maybe if I do more. Maybe if I give more. Maybe if I pray more. Maybe if I fast more. And all of those things are good and fine if they're in response to loving him. But if they're to perform for him, to get him to finally say, okay, good enough, you're forgiven. If that's why you're doing it, you're missing it. We hope to tip the scales in our favor and avoid the guilt or the possible judgment. Our only faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross will work for us and make us right with God. He kept the commandments. He imputed. Look, God imputed Christ's lifelong record of perfect obedience to you. Think about that. He imputed all that Christ had done to you. Look at Galatians 2.16. I love this. Yet we know... 
that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not obeying the law. And we've believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Did you hear that? No one will ever be made right with God by keeping all the rules, by doing it all right, by being a good person. None of that will make you right with God. If you've been trusting in that, you've been trusting in the wrong thing, and it's empty and meaningless. But if you trust in Christ, you're right with God. I love this little note, and it's not completely, this little illustration, it's not completely true, but it it gives you a good picture. We could say that we reach heaven not by walking up a set of stairs, but by riding an elevator. I like that, right? Stairs are going to take your effort, but you just get on. You just put faith in and the door. You say, I put faith in Jesus and the door to the elevator opens. You push the button and you stand there, right? It's almost like riding an escalator too. Escalators are great, aren't they? They look like a staircase, but they're not. They move for you. But the elevator is a better illustration, right? You just step into there. I trust in you, Jesus, and he's the door, and the door opens. You step in, push the button, and you go to whatever floor you need to go, and it wasn't because of any of your efforts. It was because he lifted you. And that's what he does. He lifts us. Does this make sense? So I, I, I want to tell you, if you're here today and... Maybe you've recognized, I grew up in the church, and I've grown up with religion, I've grown up with Christianity, I've grown up believing the right stuff, but I I recognize I've been trusting in myself, not trusting in Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you'd say, man, you don't know my sins, you don't know how dark they are, how deep they are, you don't know what I've been into, you don't know how vile it is, you you have no idea, God could never forgive me. I want to tell you, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how deep and how dark and how terrible it is. Jesus was crucified for that. He paid for that. He absorbed that. He took that into himself on the cross. And he wants to forgive you and cleanse you and make you right. And it just takes you saying, I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting in thee. I'm looking to you, Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me?